Is President Trump's best re-election argument slipping away today? The lead starts right now. The Dow dives hundreds of points in the fallout of President Trump's trade war with China and a new warning that we may be heading for a recession. What the red arrows could mean for your household and the next election. Leaving the race to win a marathon, the new buzz that some presidential candidates could do the Democratic Party better by dropping out and running for Senate instead. Plus, the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, tearing into the Senate Majority Leader using a nickname she must know he hates, Moscow Mitch, after a new report claims McConnell let one Russian oligarch slide on sanctions to benefit business in his state. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in the money lead. Fears of another recession causing panic on Wall Street today. The Dow taking a dramatic tumble, ending the day down more than 700 points at the closing bell. 800 there on the chart right there. The huge slide was set off by one single warning, experts say, a specific economic indicator that has historically predicted oncoming recessions, a measure that flashed a red warning light for the first time since 2005. I want to go right to CNN's Christina Leshy at the New York Stock Exchange. And Christina, how bad was the damage today? It was a bloodbath. We're down 800 points, a pretty dramatic slide, even in the final minutes of the closing bell, Jake. This is investors sending a very clear signal to President Trump that they do not like his ill-planned and so far fruitless trade war. And they are fleeing these risky assets, fleeing stocks, looking for cover in other parts of the market, like the bond market. And that is what's causing the phenomenon that you just described, which is the inverted yield curve. And what that essentially means is that it costs less, it costs more for a borrower to borrow over a shorter amount of time than a longer amount of time. That is an unnatural state of affairs. And if you take a look at this chart, recessions have followed each time we've had an inverted yield curve. This is very troubling to the market. It's this rush to safety that has investors particularly concerned. And by the way, investors also digesting the fact that the deal maker in chief may not be able to get to a deal with China. That is putting a paralysis on business from the CEO of a multinational corporation right down to the Iowa farmer. They cannot make decisions without knowing where this trade war is going, and they don't know where that is right now, Jake. All right, Christina Leshy at the New York Stock Exchange. I want to bring in CNN Global Economic Analyst Rana Faruhar along with Mark Zandi, who's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Uh, Rana, let me start with you. The, the yield curve is what everyone on Wall Street is talking about. Every time uh, it's dip. You see the recession shortly after uh, shaded in yellow. I have to ask, though, when it dropped in 2005, we didn't see an official recession for uh, another two years. Does that mean that this recession, assuming this is actually predictive and actually uh, correlated, that it might not be in the immediate future? That's true. The timing tends to vary, but it's always a big predictor. I would look, though, and say that we have a record amount of debt on the books right now, more debt than we had before the great financial crisis. There are a number of other indicators that are actually blinking red for me. Uh, Manufacturing and industrial indexes are down in both the U.S. and Europe. U.S. consumers, who've been pretty robust, are, are actually starting to look a little weaker, cutting back credit card balances, scaling back on purchasing gasoline in the middle of a holiday vacation season. 
days. And so there's all kinds of things that have been leading up to this. And at the end of the day, two big things, which is the fact that we're probably not going to get a significant U.S.-China trade deal uh, for reasons we can discuss, and also the fact that the Fed cutting rates simply didn't buoy the markets the way it used to. I think we are at the end of 10 years of easy money. Uh, and Mark, there's the international factors. Uh, President Trump's on and off trade war with China. Yeah. Toronto just referred to Germany's economy shrinking in the second quarter, moving it closer to recession. Uh, the Brexit situation in the UK. Uh, Mark, do you think that we are already in a global recession? We're pretty close, uh, Jake. Um, I think Europe arguably is in recession. I mean, the German economy, as you pointed out, contracted in the second quarter. So did the British economy. It contracted. And those are two very large Italian economy, very close to recession. So Europe's pretty close, and clearly the Asian economy is struggling significantly because of the trade war. Global uh, Asian central banks uh, last week slashed interest rates in an attempt to get ahead of the slowing economy. And then we got a data dump from China last night. Uh, last month, uh, they, were, they were just horrid. The numbers were, were awful. Industrial production growth in China is the week it's been in 17 years. Retail sales growth is slowing. So if we're not in recession globally, we're pretty close, and it's going to weigh on us here. The U.S. economy is starting to struggle, and if, this, if the president can't figure out a way to, to find some kind of face-saving arrangement with, uh, with China pretty soon, we will be in recession. Well, Ronald, let me ask you about that, because um, there's a piece in The Washington Post that basically says the White House doesn't really seem to have a plan beyond pressuring the Fed to lower rates. What should the president be doing right now other than bashing Jerome Powell on Twitter? <laughs> well, really good question. Yeah, plan A, just lowering rates, is not working. There is no Fed plan B. What we really need is a workable trade deal with China. The Chinese have made it very clear that they will come to the table, but they're not going to take a deal that's not a deal between equals. Unfortunately, we have a president that seems constitutionally unable to consider something a win unless he crushes the other side. Chinese are not going to accept that. And they have drawn a line in the sand. And when they do that, they don't back away. And Mark, when stocks have fallen like today's fall in the past, uh, experts say, don't touch your investments. Uh, everything ultimately will, will work out. But, but if we are headed for a recession, are investors or people who manage these portfolios, especially retirement accounts for, for, for uh, middle income folks, are they expected to just sit back and watch? What should people do? Yeah, just don't pay attention. For, the, for most of us, the, you know, the market will go up, it'll go down, it'll go all around. Uh, you know, timing, uh, 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 timing recessions are, are, are very difficult. Timing movements in the stock market are even more tough. Just, just don't look. You know, forget about it. I mean, obviously, if you're a baby boomer like me or you know, close to retirement or in retirement, you, you should have a uh, long conversation with, uh, with a professional who thinks about managing money for a living. And they can give you some advice. But for, for most Americans, just ignore it. Don't pay attention. All right, Mark Zandi and Rana Faruhar, thank you so much. Uh, let's chew over this with our political uh, experts. The president is obviously uh, watching what's happening uh, on the market. He's tweeting six tweets on the subject. Uh, part of his tweets in the last hour, one says, our problem is with the Fed. He went in to call the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, quote, uh, clueless Jay Powell, um, First of all, we're a long way away from the buck stops here. Yeah. Uh, but but is there a plan there beyond I, tweets? It seems like the plan may be to just make sure that there's someone else to blame if things go south. And right now it's looking like that's going to be Jay Powell, like that he will have to take the that he may have to uh, kind of bear the brunt of this from the president, because if things go bad, President Trump's going to say, well, things were going really well, but the Fed just kind of messed me up. 
because he doesn't want to talk about what's going on with China and how, uh, even though he tweeted that trade wars were good and easy to win, that's just not happening right now. And you saw the administration blink this week when they said, oh, we're not going to put a 10 percent tariff on all 300 billion of imports, uh, extra additional imports from China. We're not going to do that because it might hurt consumers. It might affect us, which is the total opposite of what President Trump has been saying. And so he doesn't want to feel that kind of pain in the economy. But there are some things that right now, if they can't get that trade deal, he's not going to be able to put that off. And, And she's right. I mean, this is a complete contradiction to what President Trump has been saying, that China is the one that pays for all the tariffs when he acknowledged that he was uh, going to ease up on some because it would hurt American consumers. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I'm an eternal optimist. Maybe the fact that, and my wife says it's a genetic defect, by the way, <laughs> that if that there's a real possibility uh, that there is, they're inching forward, and that's part of the reason he also said he wasn't going to put, I think it was 25% uh, on those tariffs, which would have been pretty tough on the economy. There are things that the president can do, and I, I wouldn't panic. I, I, I agree. A, a, a calling a recession is a fool's game, as most economists will say. Mm-hmm. It is a indicator, uh, and then the mar- on the yield, and then the, the markets dropping. We've had this before. We've had corrections in the market. It doesn't mean we're going to, you know, run quickly into a recession. My argument is, if the president steps up now, does an infrastructure bill. Uh, on, on, uh, unemployment is still extremely low. I mean, there's lots of good things to build on. Re-engage with our European friends on the China issue. I think if you started announcing a few of those things, you could see that this thing could be averted from uh, rolling into the ditch. And Jen Psaki, former communications director for the Obama White House, I do want to give you the, the pleasure of the uh, game we occasionally play here. There's a, there's a tweet for it. There's always a tweet for it. <laughs> always. In 2012, President Trump tweeted about your former boss. It's Monday. How many more excuses will Obama make today about the economy? Again, the president gets blamed no matter what, whether it's fair or whether it's not fair. Uh, And if this economy is starting to sputter at the very least, Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be voters will hold President Trump accountable. That's true. And that's a reality no matter who is president, that whoever is sitting in the Oval Office will get the blame or the thanks for where the economy is. Look, President Trump has been getting credit for the economy of the last three years. That is a continuation of the Obama recovery. I think most economists will tell you that, but it's hard to argue that point. I think what Mike said is a really important part here, and this is why it would be great if he had a fully functioning policy team, which he doesn't, is that there should be a consideration at this point. What can he do? He can consider what kind of stimulative actions, what kind of efforts that can help create jobs, help uh, prepare for a turn in the economy, what they can consider and, and get through Congress. They don't have a functioning process. And I think that's going to be a real problem here as well, because some of the indicators were beyond China. They were about the uh, housing market. You know, you've seen them on the housing market. You've seen them on manufacturing. So there are other areas where his team should be watching, and it's not clear they are. And, and Jeff Zeleny, I want you to take a listen to the president's top trade advisor, Peter Navarro, uh, earlier today. The biggest problem we're fighting right now at the White House um, is the Federal Reserve's interest rate policy. We lost a, almost a point of growth in, in Q2 uh, simply because the Fed had raised interest rates too far too fast. Again, the blame, and I'm not saying that the Fed uh, plays no role in this, but, but they're going to need to have more answers and solutions, as, as Mike was just suggesting. Sure, particularly because the president has tried to own the you know, extraordinary uh, soaring stock market. I mean, he has, uh, you know, tried to make that, uh, you know, suggest that it was because of him, and it it wasn't. But the reality is, though, I've been 
remarkably surprised, we'll see how long this lasts, at how resilient Trump voters have been, how patient they have been with his policies in Iowa and other farm states. So I was just back from about a week in Iowa reporting, talking to Republicans, farmers, other things. Uh, yes, they're worried about China. They're worried about tariffs. But they are still sticking with this president. So I think he does have many opportunities here to keep people on his side. But he's not really doing anything except passing you know, um, blame on to others. It's hard to imagine, though, what Congress could do in terms of a stimulus, though. They're not going to pass another uh, tax cut bill. Uh, in this divided government, I think, uh, you know, the president will have to search for something. But other indicators out there, SUV sales are slowing. Auto sales are slowing. So there has been this, you know, extraordinary eight-year period that is going to change. That, of course, could um, affect his reelection. But Democrats have been pretty silent on this topic overall in terms of trade and tariffs here. So we'll have to watch how this plays out. But the president, he hasn't owned this as of yet. Uh, passing the buck, I'm not sure it's going to work. And Aisha, just to give uh, a little more attention to something uh, Congressman Rogers said, the infrastructure bill that there was talk of uh, at the beginning of the Trump presidency, he and Chuck Schumer could cut a deal. These are deal makers from New York. Yeah. Democrats want to vote. And, and traditionally, Infrastructure bills, the transportation budget usually has bipartisan support, but there has been no uh, energy expended towards that. No, well, there's been a lot of talk, right? It's a joke, a running joke, infrastructure week, but it just <laughs> never, but it just never comes together. And it seems like the president, especially with the Russia investigation and all these kind of fights that they've had over immigration, there just hasn't been an appetite for them to kind of really get together and do what's necessary for infrastructure. There was that one meeting back in weeks ago now, maybe months ago, and they just never really came together. And I think that that's one of the things that President Trump has missed out on because he has this opportunity where he can lead the Republican Party to where he wants them to go. So if he really wanted an infrastructure bill and he wanted to throw his weight behind that, are they really going to buck him on that? Are they really going to fight him on that? But he hasn't done that. No, he hasn't. Uh, everyone stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about. When baby steps qualify as a major development after back-to-back -back gun horrors. New details now on how Democrats and Republicans are coming together to talk, talk about gun control. Then China seems to be showing the world they could take action at any moment against the people of Hong Kong. The new satellite photos that are making some angry protesters very nervous. Stay with us. We are back with our politics lead in an era of particular political nastiness. The White House and congressional aides from both parties have started talks about expanding background checks for gun sales. There is a lot of skepticism that a deal can ultimately be re reached. But as CNN's Pamela Brown now reports for us, President Trump has been privately telling his team he thinks he needs to take a concrete step on this issue. Near near future, we must pass gun violence prevention legislation. Every day, we lose lives. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today continuing to put pressure on the president and Senate Republicans to take up gun control legislation following last week's two deadly mass shootings. So we need to do that. We need to do it soon. Behind the scenes, CNN is learning the administration is quietly talking with some Senate staffers about a bill that includes expanded background checks, a move the president seems to favor. I would like to see meaningful background checks, and I think something will happen. The early talks, which a source describes as informational, not substantive, involve staffers for Republican Senator Pat Toomey and Democrats Joe Manchin and Chris Murphy. 
I know in the end, Republicans aren't going to support background checks legislation unless the president supports it. I remain pessimistic that uh, that's how this is going to play out. With the August recess dragging on, other Democrats on Capitol Hill are also skeptical. One Democratic aide saying, I don't feel like they are any more serious than the last 10 conversations on guns. There is a strong pull. The president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, has also been actively involved, having several conversations with lawmakers about gun policy this week. And White House aides are expected to update President Trump later this week on any progress from these gun talks. President Trump has told his advisors in recent days that he does want to take a concrete step and do something meaningful, not just something that's symbolic. This is according to people familiar with the matter. So, Jake, it remains to be seen if that will actually happen. Pamela Brown traveling with the president in New Jersey. Thanks so much. The Democrats' best chances of winning control of the Senate could come down to three candidates already running but they're not running for Senate. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead, Senator Kamala Harris of California today rolled out a new proposal for gun legislation, which she says will keep guns out of the hands of potential domestic terrorists. Gun control remaining a key focus on the trail following the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. CNN's MJ Lee now reports from New Hampshire. We're on the heels of a heavy campaign push in Iowa. Senator Elizabeth Warren is making her case to voters just one day ahead of a visit by President Trump. Dream big, fight hard. Elizabeth Warren hitting the campaign trail in New Hampshire today, making her 13th trip to the Granite State this year. What happens in 2020 won't just determine the direction of our country for the next four years or the next eight years. This is going to be the direction of our country for generations to come. Warren's visit comes a day ahead of President Trump's rally in the state, which he lost in 2016 by fewer than 3,000 votes. In a Facebook Q&A Tuesday, the Massachusetts senator was asked about the 1994 crime bill, which Joe Biden helped write, and critics say led to an era of mass incarceration. Warren did not mention her Democratic rival by name, but she made clear her disapproval. It was just wrong. And it needs to be changed, needs to be rolled back, needs to be repealed. Warren and other 2020 Democrats keeping their focus on gun violence. More than a week since the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton that left more than 30 people dead. It just might want to know before someone can buy a lethal weapon. You just might want to know if they've been found by a court to be a danger to themselves or others. Kamala Harris today unveiling a plan to confront domestic terror threats. Her proposal calls for mandating major online gun shops to perform background checks and allowing law enforcement to take away guns from suspected domestic terrorists. And Julian Castro, on the heels of last week's attack in El Paso, is calling out the president's racist and divisive rhetoric. President Trump. By airing this TV ad today on Fox News in Bedminster, New Jersey, where the president is spending time at his golf club. As we saw in El Paso, Americans were killed because you stoked the fire of racists. Innocent people were shot down because they looked different from you. Because they look like me. Now, Jake, Warren just spoke with reporters here in New Hampshire, and she showed real exasperation at the fact that Congress has not taken real action on gun violence, blaming some of the Republicans in her own chamber for refusing to get behind background check measures. She says this is one of the clearest examples for her on why she would like to get rid of the Senate filibuster. Jake. All right, MJ Lee, thanks so much. Let's chew over all this. And, and Zelani, uh, uh, Democrats have a much better shot at getting aggressive gun legislation passed if they win back the Senate. 
So there is this move from Democrats right now to try to convince a few of the candidates running for president to drop out and run for Senate. Hickenlooper in Colorado, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, uh, and Bullock in Montana. Is there any possibility that that might happen? I think for one of the three, possibly, and that uh, might be uh, John Hickenlooper, the former governor of Colorado, the former mayor of Denver, current presidential candidate, but he's really struggling out there. We are told that he has had conversations, in fact, right after our debate in Detroit that uh, that Friday, he had conversations with Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader. Uh, They've been talking to him a lot. He's had conversations with Michael Bennett about what's it like in the Senate. So he, I'm told, is thinking about it, still not thrilled about being a senator. But the others have insisted they will not do this. As Steve Bullock said, he does not want to be a senator. Beto O'Rourke is having a speech tomorrow. He's going forward with his presidential campaign. But it does raise the question, their chances are not as strong, perhaps, as presidential candidates. Why not fight for the Senate? Um, You know, a, a win in Montana or Texas is not, it's certainly not guaranteed for a Democrat. But Beto O'Rourke, we're told, is not going to do it. And there's a Houston Chronicle uh, editorial um, aimed at Beto Mm -hmm. O'Rourke, a former congressman from the El Paso area. It says, Beto, if you're listening, come home. Drop out of the race for president and come back to Texas to run for senator. The chances of winning the race you're in now are vanishingly small in Texas. Needs you. It's a nice, nice thing to read, probably. I'm sure Chuck Schumer has it framed (laughs) and and in his office. Uh, you know, I think he, Beto O'Rourke had one of the best weeks of his presidential campaign last week, of course, in the face of a tragedy. And we saw, I think, some of the magic of Beto O'Rourke that we saw during the Senate campaign. The deadline is not until December, I believe, if I'm correct. So he does have some time, although he's going to have to raise a significant amount of money, uh, get a campaign set going. He can transfer about $5 million if he decides to drop out. That certainly would be a good sign. So he says he's not doing it now. I will be interested to see how much pressure Democrats put on him if he if he continues to not really have movement in the polls. Uh, and I want to play a little bit more of that ad uh, that Julian Castro uh, took out on Fox to air specifically in New Jersey, where President Trump is vacationing, uh, talking to the president uh, about domestic terror and prejudice. Uh, take a listen. President Trump, you referred to countries as shitholes. You urged American congressmen to go back to where they came from. You called immigrants rapists. As we saw in El Paso, Americans were killed because you stoked the fire of racists. Innocent people were shot down because they looked different from you. Because they looked like me. We can't factually say that Americans were killed because he stoked the fire of racists, but, but that's certainly an interpretation and, and, and an opinion, um, obviously aimed at voters, not aimed at President Trump. I think it's aimed at look at look at the language that President Trump is using and saying that this is having an impact in this country. And President Trump obviously has been, you know, upset about this and upset about being called a racist. And he's trying to push back on that and push back on that characterization. And so it may also be aimed at getting Trump to respond and to respond to Castro in particular about what he's saying. Uh, and, and But just raising these issues, because I was at that center back rally where they chanted center back. Uh, this is something that the president, especially before these shootings, was talking about Baltimore being rat infested and all these things and no human being would want to live there. He's bringing this kind of specter of race into the into the into the conversation. And so this is what Julian Castro is is highlighting. A lot of Democrats today, including several of the ones that we've spoken about already, 
are attacking your former colleague, Republican uh, Congressman Steve King, for comments that Steve King uh, made uh, in which he was trying to defend his position in not believing in exceptions on abandoned abortion uh, for incest and rape. Uh, this is how he tried to explain himself. What if we went back through all the family trees and just pulled those people out that were products of rape and incest? Would there be any population of the world left if we did that? Considering all the wars and all the rape and pillage that's taken place and whatever happened in culture after society, I know I can't certify that they're not part of a product of that. Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, responded on the campaign trail just a few minutes ago. You would think it would be pretty easy to come out against rape and incest. Then again, you'd think it'd be pretty easy to come out against white nationalism. And uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, the senator from New York, is running for president. Tweeted, quote, Steve King, you are a disgrace. Uh, resign. Why does why does why does he say things like that? Uh, <laughs> well, you're asking me. <laughs> well, he was a colleague of yours. I mean, has, like I don't even understand. Uh, listen, he's he he's has, literally defending rape and is, incest as is, well. It for you know it produced people. This is not the first time that uh, Congressman King has inserted his foot in his mouth, uh, and it appears that maybe he got both of them in his mouth on this particular. And a few other people's, mouth. I think. <laughs> um, you know, and he does not speak for Republicans. And I understand this is a heightened political season and everybody wants a pound of flesh from the other team. But he, listen, he should be addressed for the comments that he made. He should correct his comments. But we shouldn't drag this across the country as uh, one group of, of Americans who believes certain things uh, are bad and horrible and racist people and the other ones are not. I, I actually think this this whole racism height of campaigning on both sides mm -hmm. is dangerous for the country. This takes a long time to heal. Uh, and if every conversation is only about race and insinuating race and racism uh, from both sides, by the way, I agree. I'm telling you, we are going to have a problem getting back to normalcy after the 2020 election. I hope both parties cease and desist. And I do think the president needs to change his language. And I hope he comes out very clearly and rejects uh, white supremacist. Uh, he comes out and helps the FBI get domestic terrorism investigative tools that they've been asking for. Mm -hmm. uh, there are really important things. And by the way, this is really interesting on the racism problem in America. They're not seeing a swelling of people who are identifying as what, what they would call white nationalists. They're having an increase in people radicalizing from the white supremacist movement into violence. Right. That same it, number. It's same, just that they're taking action. They're getting radicalized. And if yeah. you talk to law enforcement, they do think that there are ways to do it, but it's not necessarily law enforcement. You have to interject and get into that stream earlier. We're not even talking about that. And reason is 2020 election. So, but we'll talk more about it, and we have on the show, and we will continue to do so. And we'll bring you back to do so. Uh, while Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was trying to lift sanctions against Russia, a new report says his state was getting some economic help from a Russian company. Now House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is calling McConnell the nickname he hates so much. Stay with us. Finish line either late today. And we're back with our politics lead speaker, Pelosi, today taking the unusual step of derisively referring to the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as, quote, Moscow Mitch, a move one Republican senator just called shameless. The charge seems to have struck a nerve with the famously thick-skinned senator. But today, McConnell does face new questions about whether a backroom deal let one Russian company with ties to the Kremlin off the hook of economic sanctions. It's a company that made a major investment in a new mill in McConnell's home Commonwealth of Kentucky, according to the Washington Post. CNN's Tom Foreman filed this report. 
Aluminum for airplanes, cars, and consumer goods, and lots of work in a tiny corner of Kentucky hit hard by the opioid crisis. That was the promise as officials broke ground for a new aluminum mill. That will create up to 1,500 jobs right next to Ashland, Kentucky. You know where we're talking about, right? At well over $1 billion, the project needed loads of money. So the Washington Post says the Russians came calling in the form of Rusal, a massive aluminum company ready to kick in $200 million. But there was a hitch. Rusal was partially owned by Ole Deripaska, who was tied to Russian President Vladimir Putin. U.S. sanctions forbade doing business with the Russians in response to meddling in the U.S. election. And that's where the Post says Kentucky's senior senator, Republican Mitch McConnell, enters the scene. I was accused of aiding and abetting the very man I've singled out as an adversary and opposed for nearly 20 years, Vladimir Putin. The Post article and others suggest precisely that, pointing out that former aides of McConnell were lobbying on behalf of the aluminum plant, even as the Senate Majority Leader himself was fighting to lift the sanctions on Russia. McConnell says he had no idea the Russians were involved in the Kentucky deal. The White House wanted the sanctions lifted. That was how I voted, the reason I voted the way I did. The president's response to questions about the timing and appearance of it all? I think the Washington Post is a Russian asset by comparison. Mitch McConnell loves our country. Still, McConnell has picked up a nickname among Democrats already frustrated by him killing so many of their proposals. Moscow Mitch says that he is the Grim Reaper. The Post says McConnell wants to improve election security, but his opposition to legislation along those lines means that nickname won't go away soon. CNN reached out to McConnell's office and he insisted once again this is all a bunch of innuendo. There is no proof he has done nothing to help the Russians. But it is so clear this Moscow Mitch thing gets so far under his skin, you can absolutely bet your house He's going to hear it from Democrats a whole lot more. Unusual Jake. for the Speaker of the House to say that about her Senate candidate. Uh, very unusual, but he's going to hear it more because you can just tell how much it rankles him. All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Satellite images above a stadium usually show players and fans, but not these. We're live in China with a look at what's inside that's worrying some angry protesters. Stay with us. In our world lead now, Chinese paramilitary units lining up with riot shields and batons at the ready, miles from the Hong Kong border, sending a message that China is ready to respond if necessary to protests in semi-autonomous Hong Kong, sparked by that proposed extradition law. CNN's Matt Rivers is live near the China-Hong Kong border. And Matt, you saw these Chinese troops. What was their official explanation for being there? Well, we asked an officer that was trying to prevent us from filming these images, Jake, and he predictably didn't answer. But I think the answer is quite clear. I mean, in public statements from China's government and Chinese state media, they have drilled home this message that Chinese military forces are legally allowed to cross this bridge behind me and enter Hong Kong if Beijing chooses to do so. And seeing these military troops so close to this border, you know, that's the tangible result of this public policy. Now, to be clear, we've seen no actual signs that there's a deployment 
imminent. A U.S. defense official tells CNN that there is no deployment imminent. But that could change. And I think the fact that these forces are here shows you how seriously Beijing is taking these protests, which we saw more protests today. We saw more tear gas on the streets of Hong Kong. And that comes two days after Hong Kong International Airport, two days in a row, Jake, was basically shut down by these protests. So there's a lot of bad reasons for Beijing to go into Hong Kong. It could be disastrous on a number of different fronts. But the fact is these forces are here and they are giving Beijing the opportunity to send in troops if they choose to do so. All right, Matt Rivers uh, near the Hong Kong-China border. Thanks so much. Retired General Joseph Votel joins me now for his first TV interview since leaving the Pentagon. He was the former commander of U.S. Central Command or CENTCOM and oversaw all U.S. military operations in the Middle East until he stepped down in March. Uh, General Votel, thanks so much for being here. We it's appreciate great to hear it. You, so a lot of people uh, think that China is the biggest threat to the United States right now. Um, I know that that's not your areas of expertise, the Pacific. What do you worry about as somebody who was head of CENTCOM? What, what is your biggest fear internationally? Well, I think uh, certainly I think we have to take seriously uh, the kind of the threat that uh, that Iran poses, not just to the United States, but to other regional partners in the Middle East. And so that is uh, one of the areas that I spent quite a bit of time focused on as the CENTCOM commander and certainly uh, continue to continue to think about now. Do you think it was a mistake? I know this is policy and you, you, you carry out orders. You don't necessarily set them. Do you think it was a mistake to withdraw from the Iran deal or, or do you see a wisdom in that? Well, I, I think I'm on record here of associating myself with the Secretary of Defense at the time that uh, that we should have stayed in the uh, in the agreement, but that's the decision of the president. So we're, we carry out the carry out the policy. Uh, I want to ask you about ISIS because you said the president did not consult you before announcing that the U.S. would withdraw troops from Syria uh, in December. A Pentagon report just released uh, says that ISIS is now resurging in Syria, not in terms of uh, the caliphate, not in terms of land, but in terms of manpower uh, and uh, ability. Um, do you think it was a mistake? I mean, were your uh, did, did President Trump make a mistake announcing the withdrawal of troops? Well, I, I won't make a I won't make a determination on whether he made a mistake or not. But but the, what we see with these organizations is we do have to keep pressure on them. We have learned this uh, for the last 17 or 18 years as we confront these terrorist organizations. It's not enough just to to focus some military operations on them and let them go. We have to keep constant pressure on them. And uh, it would it would it was my belief that we needed to continue to keep pressure on an organization like ISIS to ensure that it can't resurge and come back. What do you say to Americans who say that's just the kind of thing I would expect to hear from a general? They believe in these forever wars. That's the term that a lot of the critics use, forever wars, where we're constantly fighting for generations in uh, Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan. They never want to end. Well, we, you know, we didn't choose to choose to do this. ISIS presented the threat to us uh, in in Syria and Iraq, and we had to respond. So, you know, our mission is to our mission at the time was to uh, was to defeat the the caliphate, and that's what we are focused on. And defeating the caliphate isn't just conducting some military operations; it's about keeping continued pressure on them so they can't resurge. I, I want to ask you: You were previously the head of Special Operations Command, which included overseeing Navy SEALs. There have been a lot of high-profile scandals uh, involving special operators. An investigation found Navy SEALs allegedly abusing cocaine while stationed in Virginia. Last year, an entire SEAL team sent home from Iraq over allegations of sexual assault, drinking alcohol. The general in charge has now ordered a review. What do you think is going on? Does it have to do with the pressure of the United States being at war for so long 
and special operators, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, et cetera, having to do so much of the heavy lifting. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think the actions taken by the commander are absolutely appropriate looking into this and trying to determine. They may, they may determine that, you know, the increased op tempo that we've had over, the t over a number of years has, has potentially contributed to this. But uh, really, this is about, uh, about the character, about the, uh, about, uh, the, the or these organizations coming in and really focusing in on the, on the job that they have and staying focused on that and not trying to get uh, off in these other areas. Okay. General Votel, thanks so much. Thanks so much for your service. Thanks. We appreciate Great it. It's to good here. to see thanks you. Thanks very much. One of Jeffrey Epstein's victims is not letting his apparent suicide stop her from trying to get justice. What she just did that could expose Epstein's evil web. Stay with us. And our national lead, one of Jeffrey Epstein's accusers, is suing his estate and a handful of his associates, saying that they conspired to sexually abuse and rape her. Jennifer Arose claims Epstein stole her youth, her identity, her innocence, and her self-worth. This is the New York Times reports that the guards that were supposed to be watching Epstein in jail had not checked on him for around three hours the day he killed himself. I want to bring in CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, this lawsuit describes a, a web of people who were allegedly involved in recruiting young girls and facilitating their exploitation and rape. That, that's right, uh, Jake. Uh, Jennifer Arose in her lawsuit says that uh, that Epstein raped her back in 2014, 2015. Uh, this is back uh, again several years ago. Uh, and that he had the help of not only Ghislaine Maxwell, who worked for, uh, for Epstein and allegedly was his madam, uh, but also a number of other people who are not identified in this lawsuit uh, as uh, they're, they're, they're just named as recruiter, secretary, and maid and essentially identified as, as Jane Doe's. Now, uh, according to this lawsuit, these are people who were key to having Epstein be able to recruit women, including, uh, or young girls rather, uh, including Arose, uh, at a time uh, when, you know, it was well known that he was trying to do these things. So uh, the lawsuit here is against uh, Epstein's uh, estate, as well against these other people who allegedly were his helpers in carrying out this, uh, this, uh, this sex trafficking ring. And aside from this lawsuit, the Justice Department right. is also, they say they're going to go after Epstein's alleged co-conspirators. Where do those cases stand? Well, that's, I think, the, the big focus now, the Justice Department. It's no doubt, Jake, that the fact that Epstein is dead is a big blow to this investigation. But you saw the FBI at Epstein's estate uh, on his island in, in the Virgin Islands. And you can tell from talking to people at the Justice Department is that their intent on trying to figure out any way that they can to bring charges against anybody who was helping Epstein. Look, the prosecutors, everyone believes here that you, Epstein was a rich guy who couldn't have carried out this, this uh, level of, of crimes without the help of a lot of people who knew what he was doing. And Evan, uh, on this reporting by the New York Times, these guards were supposed to check on Epstein every 30 minutes. So what happened? How was he able to commit suicide, apparently? Right, exactly, because the, the unit that, that where Epstein was housed is especially designed for you not to be able to do this. And so one of the things that the FBI is still trying to figure out, uh, Jake, is whether these people were sleeping, whether they were doing something else. Uh, there is very little video evidence of exactly what was going on there. And so that's one of the big concerns right now. The Justice Department is not even able to get basic details of what happened on Saturday uh, four days later. So there's still a lot of big questions for the FBI to figure out here. Right. The attorney general, Bill Barr, saying that he was uh, very angry about this. But of course,
he is the one ultimately who supervises the Bureau of Prisons. Right, exactly. Evan Perez, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Sure. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. We will see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.